0: following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Uh, good morning. You found the only cool place in Murrieta, Temecula that you don't have to pay for. Uh, I guess you go to the mall too, huh? But, uh, Great to have all of you with us this morning. My name is Sean Farrell. I am the college pastor here at Faith Bible Church. We love college students, 18-24s. It's called Grafted. We have 60 to 70 of them that gather every single week on Friday nights. And we exist as a ministry to help college students know Jesus Christ. And we don't get to talk about it very often from the front, but we have a thriving ministry where people are coming in hearing the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ getting saved getting plugged into our church you see them around serving all over the place it's been a really fruitful and fun ministry to be part of unless you like to go to bed early because they don't leave my house until midnight on regular occasions but uh, it is a great thing so I just encourage you if you would pray for us as you think about this we had um, somebody come last semester and just say who's Abraham and uh, we were joking this morning because Abraham Diaz raised his hand, and said, no, "No, no, the patriarch Abraham, Father Abraham." And somebody asked also, "Who's David?" David. We're like, "No, not David Avila or David Henry or David Tanawi or David who are we? we' got a bunch of Davids here. but King David, because they don't know their Bibles. And so they're coming and they're asking questions and we're teaching them, and they're getting to understand the framework of who God is, who man is, how we can be saved and know and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So pray for us as we seek to impact the next generation for Christ. Well, I want to dive in this morning and begin with a little bit of a heavier story, Um, and I'll just start. The witnesses couldn't take their eyes off the electric chair. They took it in piece by piece as they filed into the witness room. The leather restraints on that big, bulky chair, a long, thick, Electrical cable running from the bottom of the chair over to the wall across the slate gray death room floor Time seemed to stand still as the second hand slowly inched its way toward 12 It was time for the execution to begin Later they would remember how the air in the room seemed to compress at that moment How the electric chair seemed to dwarf everything else and how the condemned man, one of the rare few to still choose electrocution looked right through them before he died. But at that moment, all they could think about was, we're about to watch a man die. One witness had seen other men put to death, but they'd been laying on their back, arms stretched out, with an IV sticking out waiting for the needle. But this man made eye contact as he walked across the room. He's staring at me, she said. He's looking right at me. Witnesses aren't paid. There's no special skills needed. The death house doesn't require much from volunteers beyond a state residency, a driver's license, and basic background check, and a brief explanation of why they want to see a convicted killer die. Some say it's their civic duty, like voting or being on a jury. Others say they're curious to see if death equals justice. Still, others, victims or families of victims, Go there for some type of closure. One man said, It's not for the weak of heart. It takes a lot of courage to keep your eyes open the whole time. Now, last week we entered Gethsemane and we saw Jesus in emotional agony as he sweat great drops of blood in anticipation of his passion. Today, as we conclude our summer series on the shocking Christ, We come at last to the cross. And in the passage before us, we journey to Calvary to witness the execution of three men. And I want you to keep your eyes open the whole time. This is one of the most beloved and well-known stories in the entire Bible. It is the story of the penitent thief. J.C. Ryle once said, these words should be written in gold. It is a story of hope, a story of mercy, it is a story of salvation. And here we will see that no one is beyond forgiveness and no one is past the grace of God. The point of the story is to show us that God is in the business of saving lost sinners. And if you listen closely enough this morning and pay enough attention, I guarantee that you will find yourself somewhere in this story. You'll be encouraged challenged, and called into action to worship Christ as Savior and Lord. And if I could sum up this entire message in just one simple phrase, Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. If you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to be looking at verses 39 through 43, but we're going to back up to get a little context of what's going on here, and start reading in verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Isn't the crucifixion an incredible economy of words? 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other, the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. As we work our way through this text, I'd like to take an in-depth look at each of the three men who are being executed. We will, in a sense, be witnesses of their execution. We'll walk through this, and you'll understand the outline as it unfolds. Let's look first at the man on the left. We're going to call him the humble repenter. The man on the left, the humble repenter. The text describes this man, if you look back up in verse 32, as a criminal, Now, in the original language, this is one who uses violence to openly rob. This is not the cat burglar that you watch on Netflix who sneaks in with some dedicated, mechanical, technological plan, gets into the house, steals grandmother's pearls, and is gone before you return. This is the man who breaks in, takes what he wants, and kills anybody who gets in the way. The Bible doesn't record his crime, but we know that it's serious based on what? We know that the crime is serious based on the, the, the punishment, the sentence, correct? Yeah, so if the sentence is execution, the penalty or the, or the crime must be pretty bad. Now, the death penalty was established by God, Genesis 9, 6. It says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And capital punishment, as we call it today, has consequently been adopted by every uh, civilization and society present, um, even to the present day. And although it's taken many forms in terms of the specifics of how it's carried out, there remains a single common denominator. The death penalty is reserved for the worst criminals who commit the worst crimes. You may have heard just over a week ago... Uh, on Saturday morning, that the U.S. military performed a precision counterterrorism operation in Afghanistan, targe- targeting Al-Zawahiri, who was one of the chiefs of the Al-Qaeda network. He was the mastermind of the 9/11 attacks in New York City, or one of the masterminds. He and Bin Laden had a signed declaration, a fatwa, that said, "Quote: The judgment to kill and fight Americans and their allies, whether civilians or military, is an obligation for every Muslim." End quote and their declaration of jihad led to the bombing of multiple US embassies the USS Cole and eventually to 9/11 and after bin Laden was killed al-Zawahiri assumed control of the al-Qaeda network and so last week president Biden ordered ordered an unmanned airstrike in which a drone flew in fired two hellfire missiles into his house and there was one casualty at the end of the day and it was al-Zawahiri The story made headlines last week. Maybe you saw it and didn't think much about it. feels like that was a long time ago, kind of a speed bump. Um, But we didn't see a whole lot of disagreement from the media on this, did we? There's a lot of argument about capital punishment in our society, but when you take somebody like this, most Americans see this as justice. This man devised, accomplished horrific acts of murder and destruction, and he deserves what he got. In other words, the penalty fits the crime. And most people would rather see this mass murdering extremist dead than alive and are only satisfied when his memory is wiped from the earth. And I would argue that the man in Luke 23 is really no different. He too had perpetrated crimes against the innocent. He was likely an extremist, a zealot, and was part of Barabbas' crew. They were insurrectionists against Rome. Did you notice there was three criminals and three crosses? The, the cross in the middle was supposed to be Barabbas, but he was released and Christ was placed there instead. In, in any case, the, course ruled, the court ruled that the only punishment that fits this man's crime was to nail him to a cross so that he could no longer hurt others. And so this wretched man hangs there carrying out his sentence. And up till this point in the story, there's really nothing special, is there? People commit crimes and are punished all the time. He's getting what he deserved. This is where his sin and his decisions in life had taken him. The outcome of a life that was lived in rejection to God, this is the penalty and the price of his sin. I think we understand that here as well. You too have felt the bitter sting of sin, you've suffered the consequences of bad choices and decisions in your past. Wasted opportunity, living in regret and in pain, you bear the scars of a life lived pursuing the wrong things. Seemingly, this man would enter eternity with his fist in God's face, rebellious to the end. Alongside the religious leaders and the soldiers, he joins the mockery of Jesus. In 35, they're sneering at him, saying, let him save himself if this is the Christ, his chosen one. Jesus tells us in Excuse me, Matthew tells us in his gospel that it was both thieves who were insulting him. In Luke, we only have one. It says there in 2744 of Matthew, the robbers who had been crucified with him were both hurling insults along with the leaders, along with everybody else. And so even in death, this man is defiant. And if ever there was a soul teetering on the brink of hell, this was it. If ever there was a helpless and hopeless case, one that seemed a lost cause, it was this man. Ruined by sin, now nailed to a cross, his hours are numbered, and there was but one step between him and eternity. With no power to save himself, his fate is all but sealed. But then something changes in this man. There's no outward sign of it, other than the fact that he grows quiet and no longer rails against Jesus. And the scripture doesn't tell us what this is but there's an internal change that's taking place. We don't know what the catalyst is for this change but perhaps it's in response to Jesus prayer, "Father, forgive them." But I would tell you that there are two words that is describing what's happening in this man's heart. Sovereign grace. This is the story of his conversion. And in these next verses, his conversion is no different from any other sinner who has come to Christ asking for salvation. In fact, we see here three elements that are part of every conversion, and I want to share them with you. The first thing and it's in your outlines is that the sinner must recognize their state before God. If you would come to God asking for salvation, you must first recognize your state before God. Verse 40 He's responding to his partner in crime and he says, do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? This man senses his own wretched sin in light of the holiness of God and he knows that judgment is coming. This is clear from scripture. Hebrews 9.27 says that it's appointed for man to die once and then after this comes judgment. Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in Matthew ten twenty eight, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of God is growing in his heart, and he knows the eternal hell is just around the corner, and it is exactly what he deserves. And so this man passes sentence on himself. It's largely like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who's seeing the image of God, and the angels crying out, holy, 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 falls down and says, woe is me, for I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. This is that same declaration. He sees the holiness of God. He has the fear of God struck into his heart. And look at verse 41. Why is that? Look at your Bibles. He says there, for we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He admits his sin. He admits his guilt. He admits that what is happening is just, but he's not ready to meet his maker. He could not stand before the judge on his own. His situation was desperate, And friend, this is always the first step in conversion. No one is saved until they come to God as an empty-handed beggar, poor in spirit, acknowledging their state before God. Tell me this wasn't the case with you. When you were saved, you were running headlong into the world, pursuing selfish pleasures, living without fear of judgment or consequence, going your own way. You even took pride in saying that I'm an independent. I'm free to do as I please. And we could say that not many run as far from God as this man did, but we all understand the effects of sin in our life. It promises satisfaction, it promotes some level of fulfillment, but its end is always misery and death. Like this man, every one of us has broken God's law. Each of us has fallen short of his perfect standard. Our sin has separated us from him and placed us under his wrath. And every sinner stands under the weight of their sin. I was reminded of a time when I was in college and uh, I went to UCLA. Do we have any Bruin fans or Bruins in the house? Susie, okay, good. We got the toques in the back. In second hour, it was your son who stood and came with me. So it's a family Tokenaga thing. But the Bruins, come on. UCLA, it's a prestigious university here in the state of California that's completely woke, but that's beside the point. Anyway, I was going to UCLA, and one of the significant aspects of UCLA is that it's on the quarter system. Most of you people out here are semesters, but the quarter is only 10 weeks long. It's glorious, okay, because um, in the fall, it doesn't start until October 1st. Therefore, you have an endless summer. Literally, it feels like it goes on forever. So here I am, middle of September, and it is, uh, my friends are back in school, and there's a hurricane off the coast of Mexico. In my mind, that means those waves are traveling up, there are going to be big waves, and UCLA's up in LA, right by the beach, Santa Monica area. So I decide, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going to go body surfing with these ginormous waves, Okay, and since it's the middle of September, there's nobody on the beach, and all the lifeguards are gone. This is like Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. So there I go. I sit down on the sand. I put my flippers on. I look over to the side as the waves are hitting the, um, what do you call that thing, the pier? Yeah, the pier. The waves are cresting and hitting the bottom of the pier. These are big waves. So I swim out there, and I made two mistakes that day. The first was not listening to my girlfriend at the time, Tracy, who's now my wife, who said, don't get in the water. The second was not um, being smart enough to observe the mother-in-law set that was coming in. You know the mother-in-law set? That large cantankerous wave that comes in once in a while destroying everything in its path as as it surfaces and so I'm there floating looking and here comes this big large set coming down and I realize this is trouble because I'm at UCLA, very intelligent, so I thought in the books. And I'm doing the mental calculation of the distance between me and where that wave was going to be and whether I could get there before it broke and realized I'm not going to make it. So I put my head down and I started swimming anyway. My best Michael Phelps, I'm going for it. And I got to that wave right as it was cresting the break. And I came through it like this and shot out the other side, much like Ariel in, uh, <laughs> right in uh, Little Mermaid on the rock. That was me. Deep breath. <gasps> And then it felt like these little gremlin hands grabbed my feet and my ankles. And the power of that wave, as it broke behind me, grabbed me and swirled and pulled me back down into the depths. And I was pressed down to the floor of the ocean. I was on my knees. It was dark, swirling pressure from every single direction. The sand hitting me as it went around. And I was trapped on my knees. I didn't have the strength. I could not push up and get back to the surface. I was Not for the first time in my life, but because I've had a few near-death experiences. I can tell you about them later, mostly caused by my own stupidity. But this was one of those moments where in in that framework, I'm thinking, this is potentially game-ending. And I'm just there starting to lose hope, feeling under the control of this wave uh, I was legitimately fearing for my life, but then in a moment, I was able to get my knee to the ground and then push off back to the surface, take one deep breath before the next wave just crushed me, and that happened three or four times, and I did not make it out by much, Here's a comp- but I did survive, okay, so there you go, that's, okay, uh, but I'd like to draw a comparison. Um, in the same way that I was held under that wave, each one of us is under the judgment of God, held there by our sin. We, we have chosen to go our own way and the pressing force of sin and the, the impending judgment of God holds us against our will. Apart from Christ, we are helpless, hopeless, and have no chance of saving ourselves. Unlike my situation where I was able to do it on my own, there is no escape because God is an impartial judge and he holds every man and woman equally guilty before him because of their sin. And if you look back one more time at verse 41, this is it very clearly. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. This is right and just. The sinner must first recognize their state before God. It's always the first step in conversion. The second there is that the sinner must see Christ rightly. The sinner must see Christ rightly. Let's keep moving in the text. This man has had an amazing Christology. For what little knowledge he has, he sees Christ rightly rightly. In verse 41, he says, this man has done nothing wrong, declaring the innocence and sinlessness of Christ. In Matthew 27, 4, Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood. In John 19, 4, Pilate testified, I find no fault in him. And God opens the eyes of this robber to see the faultlessness of the Son of God. But that's not all. Look back at verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Who is he saying that Jesus is? Let me give you a hint. Who has their own kingdoms? Kings Kings have their own kingdoms. And yet, if you think about that scene, all outward appearances would deny the kingship of Jesus Christ, right? This king was not seated on a throne. He was nailed to a cross. Instead of wearing a royal crown, he's wearing a crown of thorns. Instead of being weighed upon by servants, he was in the company of criminals. Instead of having an army to command, he had only mockers to ridicule. This man was bloody, bruised, had his beard plucked out, was covered with the spit of others, hanging naked, shamefully exposed for all to see. There is no appearance of royalty, nothing that would indicate his right to the throne. No one fighting for him. He's there alone by himself. The disciples who were cowering off in the distance had seen Jesus walk on water. This man only saw him walk to Calvary, stumbling as he carried his own cross. The disciples were there when he took five loaves of bread from a young boy and divided them, splitting them with his hands, breaking and multiplying them until they fed 5,000. This man sees those same hands, only they're nailed to a cross." The disciples were eyewitnesses at his transfiguration. When Jesus peeled back his flesh, revealing his very deity, this man sees only a condemned criminal hanging on a cross. They saw him raise the dead. This man sees someone who will soon be in his own grave. There is no scepter, no crown, no throne, no outward side of a kingdom, only above his head a little placard that read, this is the king of the Jews in three languages. And yet, even with all of this, this thief declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the coming king of Israel. How does this happen? This this is not a human effort. It is divine intervention. This is Ephesians 2, if you know that passage, where it says that we were born in sin. We are under the condemnation of death. We are um, children of wrath. You know that passage? we are dead in our sins, that whole thing. And you get to verse four and it says, but God. This is his but God moment. When God comes down, shows him the holiness of God, shows him his own sin, recognizes, and shows him the Savior in Jesus Christ, and his eyes open and he sees it. This is an amazing moment for this man. It is sovereign grace. First Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so this man recognizes his sin. This man sees Christ rightly. And thirdly, the final step in any conversion is the sinner must cry out for mercy. Look at verse 42. Here is his cry. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is the desperate cry of the sinner. This man could not reform his life or turn over a new leaf because he was dying. He could not walk the paths of righteousness because his feet were nailed to a cross. He couldn't give money. He couldn't do acts of kindness. There was nothing he could do to fix all the wrongs he had done. His fate was sealed. He has but a few breaths left. And so in desperation, he cries out to God, save me. Please save me. This is the publican in Luke 18 who beating his chest, he won't even look to heaven. He just says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is that cry. This is the jailer in Acts 16 who falls down before Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? Anything. This is it. I need help. This is the prodigal who has gone all the way to the end, left the father's house, he spent everything, he's done with nothing but a pigsty, he's a pig himself, he has nothing left, in desperation he comes to a sentence and says, I will go back to my father's house. This is that moment. Do you remember that moment, Christian? That moment you cried out to Jesus to save you? When you saw the holiness of God, when you felt the weight of your sin pressing against you, and you cried out for help, that is the same cry that this thief made. And guess what? Jesus answers because Jesus is mighty to save. Now, let's turn our attention from this man to the man in the middle. The man in the middle is our second character, and we're going to call him the Holy Redeemer. The Holy Redeemer. Verse 33 tells us, the man who hangs between two thieves is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the infinite, eternal, uh, the, the infinite, eternal one who exists outside of space and time. He is the all-powerful God who created the universe and sustains it by the word of his power. He is sovereign. He is the second member of the Trinity. And in his role as son, he took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, and walked the dusty roads of Palestine. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied um, that he would be the Messiah who God promised would rescue the people of Israel, sit on the throne of David, and crush the head of the serpent. But instead of putting him on the throne and de- bowing down to him in worship, when he came to Israel, to his people, they condemned him and put him to death on a cross. That's why in John 1.10 it says, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Isaiah 53 describes him as despised and rejected and one from whom men hid their faces. His face is so badly beaten that he is unrecognizable. 53, 4, Isaiah 53.4 says that he is the man of sorrows. But unlike the men that hung on his left and his right, he is completely innocent. He does not hang there paying the penalty for his own sin as he was totally sinless. He hangs there paying the penalty of the sin of others. Now, I'd like to illustrate this with this large jar of coins, okay? You're wondering what this was doing here. We're not taking an offering for the building. Um, But this could be the last great coin collection of our time, because do you ever have coins anymore? I don't ever have coins, do you have any coins? Okay, this is Mason Zarzos right here, can you give him a round of applause? Mason, don't, don't go yet, Mason's gonna help me with this. Yeah, there you go. Mason's in high school, you're gonna be a, a senior. Okay, how's the year looking so far? Good. Okay, you ready to get rocking and rolling? Oh yeah. Okay, you have a girlfriend? No. Okay, all right, here we go, all right. Um, this is a little bit of a rudimentary illustration but if you would, uh, humor me, because I think the picture will help us. Let's envision that, don't lift it yet because it's really heavy. This thing's a beast. Let's envision that each one of the coins in here represents a human soul, a person, a son or daughter of Adam who's under the, um, the curse. Each one of us has broken God's law, and we stand condemned before a holy judge. Got it? That's the picture. Anybody here born in 1990? Rock. Raquel, for those of you who don't know her. Good. We're going to put you in the Rock. Um, 1984. Okay, in the back, the Novaks are in the house. Good. Um, We've got a lot here. I can't do too many more. Oh, 1994. Oh, a couple right over here. Perfect. So each one of these represents not just a person in the room, but we'll say all of humanity. So go ahead and pick that thing up, Mason. And what we're going to illustrate here is that this is... Okay, don't break your back. What we're going to illustrate here is that this is um, Jesus bearing the weight of the sin of this world. God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every believer that has ever lived. That thing's heavy, isn't it? Jesus on the cross is experiencing an, eternal, an eternity of hell that was meant for us as he hangs. He is suffering in a way that's beyond understanding. The night before in the garden... He prayed, let this cup pass from me, experiencing the full, furious, unmitigated wrath of eternal God. He bears the full weight of sin. He is suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually in a way that is unmeasurable. And while he's hanging there and he's experiencing the full weight of the wrath of God and paying for the price of sin, struggling as he is, he hears a voice from the side of him. It's the voice of this thief. And the thief is saying, Jesus, remember me. And in that moment, there is one more. In that moment Jesus looks at an act of mercy in his greatest pain and suffering he adds him in and he pays the price you can put that down All right and he's out <laughs> There is one more sinner there is one more man one more poor wretch who cries out for mercy We don't know this man's name, but I guarantee you Jesus did, because he has a book. It's called The Lamb's Book of Life, and he has written every name in it before the foundation of the world. And you can be sure that Jesus, when he heard the cry for mercy, knew that's one of mine. Jesus, remember me, and the Savior grants his request. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Luke 19 says that, 19.10 says that he has come to seek and save that which was lost, John 3.17 says that God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so in the day when he was most weak, he showed himself to be a strong deliverer. In his hour of pain, he showed that he could think and be merciful to others. And even in his own death, he offers life to that guilty sinner. What about you? What about me? This one right here, 1976. This one's mine. It's worthless, pretty much. Banged up. Kind of scarred. Obviously got a lot of history. If you saw it on the street, you wouldn't even pick it up because it has no value. And Christ bore my sin. Because he loved me. And Christ bore your sin because he loved you. And Christ carried every last ounce of the wrath of God, drank that cup dry because he loved each one of us. And he didn't stop until all sin was paid for. And this man comes asking, begging for mercy. And Jesus, in 43, responds to him Look at your Bibles. Today you shall be with me in paradise. This is a promise. And it speaks of the salvation offered by Christ. And I want to show you four things about this salvation that are electrifying. Four things you can grab onto and hold onto that will encourage your heart because this same promise comes to us. First, the promise of Christ is certain. It is certain. Look at 43. He says, truly I say to you, This is a statement of fact. It is an irrefutable truth given from the one who holds the keys of death and of hell. He has all power. He has all authority. When he speaks, the storm is calmed. When he speaks, the demons run from him, cowering in fear. And when he tells this thief, truly I say to you, this becomes an unbreakable promise. This thief receives the greatest assurance in all the pages of scripture. J.C. Rowell says, start in Genesis 1, go to Revelation 22, look for another promise and another level of assurance this great. This man hanging there got the best promise in all the scripture. This is certain. Next, the promise of Christ is immediate. Look back at the text. Truly I say to you in 43, look at that next word, today, this day, this is the day of salvation You don't have to go to purgatory to work off your sins. There's no form of soul sleep or no spiritual limbo. This is not about the end of the age where maybe you'll be resurrected or who knows what happens. It is today. The promise is now. His death was coming in just a few breaths. And Jesus promises that he will meet him on the other side. This man knew the Passover was coming, and as such, before the sun went down, they would come with the Sabbath and Passover, and they would take a large sledgehammer, and they would break his legs so that he would not be able to lift himself up to breathe any longer. He was tasting death. It was right there, and so these words of Jesus speak comfort to him in his greatest time of need. It is today. It is this day, Immediately. And so the promise of Christ is certain. The promise of Christ is immediate. The promise of Christ, thirdly, is intimate. He says in 43, you shall be with me. This is stunning. The thief is asking only to be remembered. This is kind of like, well, if I can just get into the room, I'll I'll take the back seat in the corner. I'll just sit on the floor. I just, just remember me. Just put a good word, something, get me in the door of the kingdom. But Jesus' response is overwhelming. You, guilty sinner, will be with me. You and me, there's an intimacy together in my presence, by my side. What a promise. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. And 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that we will always be with the Lord. This promise is Intimate that the believer will be with Christ. There's a quote I'd like to read from A.W. Pink. It's not in your outlines, and it's a little bit long, but it's simple, so stay with me. He says, quote, that which makes heaven attractive to the believer is not that heaven is a place where we shall be delivered from all sorrow and suffering, nor is it that heaven is the place where we shall meet again those we loved, nor is it that heaven is the place of golden streets and pearly gates. No, no. It is Christ that the heart of the believer longs for, end quote. It is not about being on a cloud somewhere, strumming a harp, and not having to go to hell. It is being in intimacy and in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise is amazing. It is intimate. It is certain. It is immediate. And fourth, it is glorious. Verse 43 says that you will be with me where. In paradise. In just a few moments, this man will be dead. And and yet, we see the fear of judgment is replaced by the confidence that he will stand in the presence of God, not cowering back because of his sin, but blameless and with great joy. He will stand with the angels and the saints of old and he will worship God in that place, in that paradise, in his presence around his throne. This, my friends, is the Garden of Eden restored. In the Garden of Eden, God said, you'll never come in here because of your sin. In paradise, God says, I've taken care of your sin and I welcome you back into my presence in paradise. To those of us who have lost loved ones, the ones who have gone before us, we've lowered them into the ground with great sorrow and grief, shedding tears of mourning. But even now, in this moment, they are in paradise. A place that Revelation 21.4 says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. It's in Psalm 16.11 that says in the presence of God there is fullness of joy and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And this man was promised that he would be in that glorious place with his Savior on that day. For those in the room who are older saints, just before he died, I talked to my wife's grandfather who said, Sean, it's been a long rope, but I'm hanging on to the very end. He was in his 90s. Some of you are hanging on to the end of that rope, and I would tell you that what lies ahead at the end of your race is the glories of heaven. Is a paradise where you'll be in, in immediate intimacy and certainty with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. What a promise! What a promise. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. How true this is. Jesus stands ready to save all who come to him and like this thief ask for mercy. Though your sins outnumber The sand on the shore, though you've done things that you're ashamed of, though you feel dirty and guilty and used and unworthy, Jesus promises to bind your broken heart, to heal you, forgive you, wash away your sins, and to make you clean. If this dying thief was not beyond the reach of divine mercy, then neither are you. And the same offer of forgiveness that was extended to him comes to you even this morning. Is there not one more coin in this room? Is there not one more person who's been going their own way in rebellion with the fist in God's face who's been holding out in pride? Is there not one more who will come to Christ today and ask for mercy so that he will bear that sin? Jesus says today is the day of salvation. He's the only one who can save you. Though you've squandered your life in selfish pursuits, and feel like this thief beyond the reach of heaven, but here we see, even this morning, the Savior extending grace upon grace to the undeserving, as he still calls today. My friends, Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Turn to him this morning and experience the cleansing of your soul. I think it'd be great... If we could end the message right there. Seeing the greatness of our Savior. Seeing the willingness of this man to turn. Makes great bookends, doesn't it? But alas, there is one more character. One more man. He's often neglected. Let's turn our attention to him. We'll call him the man on the right. He is the hardened rejecter. The hardened rejecter. Verse 33 tells us there was another thief who was being executed that day. He too would pay for his crimes with his life. He too had committed the same violent acts as this other man. He witnessed the same things that the other thief saw. He was there to see all that had happened. He had equal access to the Savior. He heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He also could read the inscription above Christ that said, This is the King of the Jews. Both watched as Jesus graciously gave his life for the sins of the world. But only one cried out for mercy. And if we learn one thing from this man, let it be this while some are saved in the hour of death, others are not. You may say, Why should I be afraid? The first thief was saved. I answer, that is true, but look again. The other thief was lost. In this room, there are husbands and wives who sit every week under the teaching of God's word, hear the same messages, expose the same truth, but only one acts upon them. In this room, there are brothers and sisters who have attended the same church all their lives, same youth groups, same camps, all the same experience, but only one chooses to follow the Savior. There are fathers and sons and friends and mothers and daughters and all sorts of people with equal opportunity, and yet only one responds in humble repentance to the Savior. Matthew Henry said, one thief was saved that we not despair, but the other thief was lost that we may not presume. This man lived rejecting God, and he died the same way. As he lived, so he died. Reject God in life, and you'll reject him in death. I think it's interesting if you look back at this text. Both thieves asked Jesus for salvation. One in humble repentance said, remember me in your kingdom. It was true. The other thief, we just breezed across when we read, was mocking but saying, come on, Jesus, get me down too. If you really are this God... Then let's go, get us off this cross. He's asking for salvation on his own terms, in his own timing. Having lived his own way, even in death, he's unwilling to empty himself. And so he says, I'll have it my way. And that's not the case. As you live, so you will die. Reject God in life, you'll reject God in death. Do not continue to sin willingly, thinking it's okay. I won't go to hell. I'll fix this at some point you push spiritual things out of your mind i don't want to deal with this now i'm just in high school college i want to have fun i want to experience this world i'll get to that later maybe down the road you get married you have kids you have a career it's always next i'll get serious about god next don't worry i'll take care of that i will fix that i'm not going to go to the grave until i've dealt and made been ready to meet my maker but my friends this is madness You have not been promised even tomorrow. Why would you trifle with your undying immortal soul? Do not wait. The longer that you push God away, the harder it is to come back. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving, evil heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. While it is still called today, there is still hope. But I'll tell you this the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melted this man's heart into forgiveness is the same truth that, if you reject it, will harden you against the Savior be cautious. If you were wise, you would put off nothing that concerns your soul. Think of this man. He was there. He saw Jesus die. He had the opportunity to repent. But now in this moment, he is in hell in full eternal regret. He is faced with the knowledge that he could have been forgiven if he'd only humbled himself to ask for mercy. Do not be like this man. Please listen to me. The same opportunity comes today, the same knowledge, the same offer to you. Don't go to hell from Faith Bible Church. God has extended his mercy to you this morning. Won't you turn to Christ and be saved? Now, as we close this message, I'm just about out of time, but I want to tell you about two young men that I spoke with this week. Both used to attend FBC, both were part of the college ministry, and I got to minister to them. One called from another state, he's married kids, and just said, Sean, I'm just struggling. I'm in a spot where I can't go to church very often because of my job situation, and my intimacy with the Lord is just not there. I feel like I'm backsliding, I'm just really struggling. Pressures of life are pressing against me, I can't sleep, I'm just having a hard time. Can you help me? I said, yes. Let's open our Bibles straight to God's word. Revelation chapter 2. Right there, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I said, my friend, you have abandoned that love and you're pursuing these other things. And Jesus' response is simple. Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Remember, repent, and return. And we talked through it. I got to encourage him to say the issue is your heart and your intimacy with Christ. Go back, confess your sin and find that relationship um, rebirthed as it were. We prayed together and then he got off the phone committing to do those things. The other was a young man that I ran into on the street in Temecula. He was walking and uh, he's in between halfway houses. I recognized him. I turned around. I said, hey man, you need a ride? He didn't have shoes on. Uh, yeah, sure, I'm trying to go over to this place, and he tried to explain to me that life was going pretty well, things were working out. And I asked him, hey, how's, uh, how's your relationship with the Lord? I still believe in God, Sean, but I don't believe in Jesus. Every time I think about him or I try to do something, we're like this. So I'm not pursuing God in any way right now. We parted ways, and this time I prayed as I drove by myself, that God would work in his heart. The question I want to ask you here at the end of this Shocking Jesus series is, what will you do with this Jesus? You've seen two responses of these thieves. You see two responses in the men that I talked to. What will you do now that you've seen the person and the work of Jesus Christ? If you call him Savior and Lord, then the response is to worship The response is to turn from those sins and to follow harder after him. But I want to give you one more thing because oftentimes in a message like this, we're under the heavy weight of sin, still feeling like Jesus is on that cross. But my friends, he has paid the full penalty. It is done. You walk out of this room in freedom. Living in the liberty of Jesus Christ, he paid for your sin. He loves you and now you walk almost as if you're floating because the sin isn't there anymore. And you live to worship and to love him. And now you say out of an act of gratitude for what he did to me, I put my life on the altar and I sacrifice all that I am for him. This is my gift back. Take these humble stained hands, Lord, and use them but we walk out in the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ knowing that we're free and we have the hope of heaven. It is certain, it is immediate, it is intimate and it is glorious and we will be with him. Live in light of that reality, my friends. But if on the other side you're not a Christian and you still feel the weight of your sin, you're still this coin hanging out there, Jesus is mighty to save. Don't leave this room until you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. I close with this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a truth. What a Savior. Father, we're so grateful to be in your presence this morning, to see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so as your children who have been bought by his blood, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for paying the penalty for our sin. Thank you that when we were lost and desperate, you came chasing after us. And now as those who can stand before you holy and blameless, not by our works, but because of what Christ has done, We want to sing. We want to give you our very lives. And we admit and acknowledge once more that it's not our effort and nothing we can do to earn our place with you, but it's all in Christ. Thank you so much for the salvation you've given us. We say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.